Good morning, good morning, good morning. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. We've got a packed show, a busy show. It's uh, in the second hour, we'll be having Baldry's beat as usual. Lots of stuff to talk to with uh, Keith Baldry. We'll also be talking about the tourism sector. They are the tourist and hospitality sector are, are looking for leadership from the province to talk about, you know, reopening. What's the reopening plan? What are we going to do? In the last hour, we'll be talking about. Uh, we'll be getting some information on what's going on in Israel. Uh, we'll be finding out from the Penticton mayor why he is so angry with the province and. Titanic treasures. There's a message in a bottle that we need to talk about. In this first hour, we'll be talking about uh, electoral reform at the municipal level. Is your local government uh, time, is it time for reform at your local government? Coming up now, the call for tougher enforcement in BC has been answered. The BC government says people who don't pay COVID-19 related fines could be refused a driver's licenses or vehicle licenses. Public Safety Minister Mike Farmouth was just on Simi Sarah show talking about this. When you go to renew your driver's license or <clears throat> when you go each year to, uh, to buy your, your insurance, you also get, you renew what's called your vehicle license at the same time. Uh, and so that uh, the legislation uh, will allow uh, that if you have uh, outstanding fines, COVID-related fines, then we can refuse to issue uh, the driver's license and a vehicle license uh, until they're paid. Joining me now is Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law, who knows the inside and outside of this these kind of regulations. Uh, she talks about this a lot. Hi, Kyla. Hello. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Tell me about what this what the what's the plan here? I, I get a ticket and I don't get my license. How's this going to work? Well, it works the same way as many other provincial fines. So, for example, if you don't pay your family maintenance, your your uh, child support, uh, they can refuse to issue you a driver's license or insurance. And it's essentially a way of holding people accountable so that people don't get fines um, for doing something wrong and then just say, well, you know what, I, I'm never going to pay this and there's no way they can collect it from me. It's a way to make them accountable for those fines. So it's not unusual that we have other versions of this, but can't, stopping you get your driver's license, that's, that, that's also something we see? Yep, we see that often in uh, in BC with all sorts of different fines. Any basically almost any provincial fine that you're issued, if you haven't paid it, you won't be able to renew your license or purchase insurance. Is this far-reaching though? In different ways, I mean, are we pushing the boundaries because of, of we're we're living under this emergency program act? <clears throat> Is this taking advantage of that act and using tools to create more restrictions for uh, British Columbians? I mean. There is a, a concern that this could be used to disproportionately affect people who are low income or people who are marginalized because they are going to have less of an ability to pay the fine. And so saying now you can't have your driver's license, now you can't drive because you owe us this money is going to keep them from working, keep them from earning the money that they need to pay the fine. Um However, there is a way to deal with that, which is to dispute the ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you dispute the ticket, you can request t- additional time to pay the fine. You can ask for fine reductions, or potentially you can be found not guilty. So if I decide to dispute this ticket and I get one, I, go, I start that process. How long does that process take? If I'm in that process, does that mean and my license needs to be renewed in the middle of that process? What happens? Once you put the ticket in dispute, you are saying, I'm, I'm asserting my innocence of this of this ticket and it cannot be you cannot be made to pay the ticket while it's in dispute so disputing it will buy you time um, and allow you to renew your license it'll also give you an opportunity to ask for a fine reduction or even further time to pay if you need it but will i get if if my driver's license needs to be renewed in the middle of that period of time will i be able to renew my driver's license 
yes, you will. You're essentially presumed innocent until you're proven guilty at your court date. And to give you a sense, you know, court dates for any violation tickets issued in BC are usually about six to eight months after the incident. If I fail in that challenge, uh, then will my driver's license be revoked? No, your driver's license doesn't get revoked. Once uh, the ticket is is dealt with, if you fail in your challenge in court, uh, you'll be sentenced. And at the sentencing, the uh, sentencing uh, justice will give you time to pay the fine um, or order that the fine is due immediately, depending on your circumstances. And your driver's license only won't be renewed. Um, So it doesn't automatically get revoked uh, Mm -hmm. simply because you have a fine owing. It just means that you can't renew it when it comes time for renewal. So, you know, in theory, you're, you're buying yourself up to five years. Right. So that's the best case scenario, I suppose, if you don't want to pay it. But eventually you're going to have to pay it if you lose in court. Do you think it eventually will be? Will. Yeah. Do you think it will be uh, challenged in court? Do you think and, and how, you know, how successful will that be? Oh, absolutely. These these rules are, are going to be challenged in court. We've already seen a lot of the existing ones go through court challenges as far as their constitutionality, none of which have been successful. The government has, has succeeded every time in saying that this is a reasonable limitation on people's rights and that these means are necessary to, to enforce the law um, and to ensure that people don't spread COVID. Um, but, you know, the, the travel-related uh, tickets that we're seeing issued now um, haven't been challenged in court yet, and, and I expect that those bans will also will go through a, a challenge uh, about their constitutionality, and we'll see where that uh, ultimately ends up for people. It, it's it's reminiscent a little bit of when we were had the, going through the cell phone, uh, you know, finding process, but that was more, um, you know, wishy washy. I suppose as if you were challenging, it was more if you could you could successfully challenge the that one because it was more difficult to prove it. Was it that? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, with with cell phones, they have to prove, you know, that it was an electronic device. They have to prove that you were using it and and within the specific definition of use in the Motor Vehicle Act. For the COVID fines, it's, you know, a lot more easy to prove the offense. If you attend Mm -hmm. a gathering um, at a residence, you're present, you provide your identification to the police officer, you're there, you know, that's, that's, that's committing the violation. If you're the owner of a residence and you're hosting a large gathering, you're seeing all the people there and, and knowing that you own the property is, is essentially enough to prove the offense. So the elements that have to be proven in court are much, much less than the elements that have to be proven um, with a cell phone ticket. For the travel-related tickets, yes, the right. elements that, ha- that have to be proven that. in court are... <laughs> They're more complicated because the statements that you make when you're questioned by police mm-hmm. about where you're going are not admissible as evidence against you. Right. So the, f- let's pivot to the story that came out today. This guy, in North Vancouver man, who's heading up on the Malahat Highway, was issued a ticket, not on a roadblock. It was for, and he got a ticket for non-essential travel under the Emergency Program Act, and he was told to return immediately to the Lower Mainland. So he was on the island, go back home, go back to the Lower Mainland. You're not allowed to be here. Uh, is this surprising that that happened? And that would be a situation where the decision was made, but it wasn't a roadblock. It was, but he was out of his area. I was extremely surprised to see that this ticket was issued. And and the reason I was surprised is when they announced these these travel bans and the enforcement with ticketing, the minister came out and he said, this is only going to happen at roadblocks. We're hmm. not going to be conducting random stops. And I get that this was a stop for somebody who was allegedly committing other Motor Vehicle Act offenses. But as soon as you open the door to police issuing those tickets in situations where they're exercising other authority that they have under the Motor Vehicle Act, now you're saying they can do random stops. 
Because Mm -hmm. under the Motor Vehicle Act, the police have the power to conduct random traffic stops to check for license, sobriety, fitness to drive. Why not just add in asking somebody where they're going and why they're going there? So this could be used in any part of the province, including potentially people coming into BC from Alberta. So the police, in fact, are, if if this doesn't get disputed uh, and the province doesn't tell the police to stop this, uh, the police could potentially just stop anybody anywhere they want and coming in, say, Albertans, which seems to be the big controversy, hey, you can't come into BC. Unless we see something from the government directing the police not to be doing this, I foresee this as as the police essentially having an open invitation to stop anybody with Alberta plates or to stop anybody uh, for any reason to check the purpose of their travel. And remember that police have automatic license plate scanners on their vehicles. So their vehicles can alert them to who owns that vehicle, where that vehicle is normally associated to, which allows them to go, well, this vehicle is outside its normal health region. I'm going to investigate why. Does this make it more disputable then? Because of what the minister said that he wouldn't do this, uh, yet they are doing it. So now is that does that make this more disputable? I mean, a, min- a minister's statement doesn't make it more disputable as far as challenging the individual ticket, but right. the scope of the authority and the violation of a person's you know, constitutional rights to move freely about the province and between provinces, that does make it more vulnerable. If the minister is saying one thing, but the effect of the law is another thing, courts have looked at that often in the past and found that as a, a, a very important point in determining that a law is not constitutionally valid. Does this is this an example where the Emergency Program Act has gone is, has potentially been put leveraged too far? Uh, you know, we have this program act. We there's always that worry that it provides a lot of freedom, uh, in, certainly on the policing side. That this is an example of taking advantage of, of an act. With this case. Uh, the, on the Malahat, yes, I think it is. I think it is taking it too far. The point of, uh, you know, and, and we, the government has been transparent of, about this. The point of these provisions on travel under the Emergency Program Act is to discourage people from leaving their health authorities. It's not to go around trying to catch people who already did um, and interrogate people who are stopped for other reasons and go beyond the permissible scope of, of the brief interaction that roadside stops are supposed to be. All right, Kyla, thanks for joining me today. That was really informational. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. George Affleck in for Mike Smith this week. So today at a meeting of Lower Mainland Government Association, which is like this organization that has all the municipal politicians from the Lower Mainland, the municipal politicians are voting on whether they want to change how, how the voting works in our municipal elections. It's, it's kind of like it's not a one-size-fits-all resolution. Basically, it's called it's Resolution 5, and it's seeking to give more power to different municipalities to choose their own advent, you know, way of they, they do their elections. So basically, empowering municipalities to fi- figure out the way they want to do their elections. Uh, and some people, like my next guest, think this is the one of the most important resolutions we've seen in years designed to strengthen strengthen local democracy. Dave Meslin, creative director of Unlock Democracy Canada, uh, and he wrote Tear Down Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up, joins me now. Hi, Dave. Hey, George. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So uh, tell me exactly how this, what the, you know, what the intention here, what does this policy look like? It's It's called local choice, and it's called that because it doesn't force any city to do anything. It just gives councillors and mayors uh, the option, if they want, to innovate and try something new. And I think we need more of that in democracy. We can't just keep using the same voting systems over and over just because, you know, that's the British model we inherited 
you know, yeah. <laughs> many, many, many decades ago. So right now, cities in BC aren't allowed to, to experiment at all. So all we're saying is give them some tools. We don't want the pro- provincial government micromanaging city councils. Give them some flexibility. So currently here in BC, and I think it works mostly like this, except in BC we have a lot of political parties municipally, but you, you have uh, your, select, your slate of people, you have, the, you have the mayoral candidate, you choose that person, and then you have the, the council candidates, and you have in, in Vancouver like 50, some or 60 or 80 people running for the 10 seats, and every city has a different. Um, it's kind of a first-past-the-post system, um, but, yeah. that, that's, but that could work in some, but you're saying let the community decide. There's so many other ways to run elections. And, you know, first past the post, you know, I think everyone agrees it's not a perfect system. Maybe there is no perfect system. But, you know, every different system has benefits and drawbacks. First past the post for a mayor, for example, is a terrible system, which is why, for example, none of our political parties use first past the post to elect their own leaders, right? (laughs) NDP, liberal, conservatives, you name it, Green Party, none of them use first past the post to choose their leaders. So why why are we stuck with it to choose our leaders? So in Ontario a few years ago, what they said is, listen, if you want to use a ranked ballot, for example, just like all the parties do, go ahead. If you don't want to use it, don't use it. But if you want to try it, here you go. And London, Ontario became the first city in Canada to ditch first past the post. So this motion that they're voting on today, all it's saying is let city councillors do their job. Let them decide uh, what the local needs are for their town, village or city. Part of the intention of this, though, is is meant to provide a more... Uh, you know, a system that potentially is more diverse for and, and able to reach out to more people and maybe l- make it less confusing. But I think, it, what, what if it makes it more confusing? If you give every municipality the right to do whatever they want, they might create a more, such a confusing system that the people that you are intending to make this more uh, accessible to will be more confused. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and that's the recommendation coming from the Union of BC Municipalities. They're saying, whoa, 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 this is Right. This is too confusing. You know, we, we, we don't want a patchwork of systems. So my answer to that, George, is that, is that I trust voters more than UBCM does, I guess. Um, I, think, I think people are smart enough to figure out how different ballots work. In the cities where they've already been doing this, there's been no issue around voter confusion or lower turnout. I mean, they've been doing this in San Francisco using a ranked ballot for 15 years, Minneapolis for 10 years. They just started using it just in on, New York City. So just this, on the mayor mainly? Just on the mayoral candidate or on all the candidates? No, for, for all of council okay. and mayor. You've got Berlin and um, London, England using uh, a mixed member proportional system, which is a whole different c- category. Mm-hmm. You've got Cambridge, Massachusetts using ranked ballots with multi-member districts. There's lots of different ways to do it. And, George, let me ask you, are you using the same phone that you used 10 years ago? <laughs> do you have the same haircut you had 30 years ago? Well, we change. You know, maybe. We, we tr- maybe you do. <laughs> or maybe, you, like me, you've lost half your hair. <laughs> but we, we change. We try new things. And it's just so weird that we haven't upgraded the operating system of our democracy in 150 years. So, and the place to experiment is at the local level, I think. Well, that sounds scary, but and maybe that's why LM, the, the municipal uh, association doesn't want to support it. This is the first time you've asked for this kind, this specific kind of reform, but there's been other requests, certainly in BC, uh, to the UBCM, which is the regional uh, association, which then sends these things to the province. There's been other asks, but have 
those this you know this have the, have other ones been successful that have gone all the way to the province and then will this one potentially if it's not being recommended be successful if it goes to the province it it will be successful at some point if you go to our, our website unlockdemocracy.ca we've actually launched this thing that we're we're calling the amazing race <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's the idea is which province will be the first to allow all cities to have local choice and we have little game pieces on the game board. We have 12 legs of the race. Uh, BC right now is in second place. And, you know, I don't know which province will be first and which one will be a leader, which one will be followers. But I guarantee you in 10 years, every city in Canada will have local choice. It's just, it's just common sense that we need the political space for local municipalities to be innovative creative and to be laboratories for positive change as you know uh we had a, a referendum on proportional representation and, and it didn't succeed and uh so the 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 desire by the current ndp government may not be particularly high in any kind of reform for government because they they failed at their attempt on that one so you know is this too soon for this government to be pursuing this or is this because or is this a long game for you well, I would say, George, that it's the perfect response to the referendums, because what the referendum showed, you, you've had three now, 05, 09, and then the most recent one. And in 05, by the way, 58% of BC <laughs> did vote yes, but they had set their threshold so high to win. We, we were supposed to get over 60 to win, uh, so we, we didn't technically win. But 58% of British Columbians said, yes, we want a, we want a new system. But what what the all three referendums but you still lost really showed, three times in a row, which says to me that the British Columbians aren't particularly interested in reform. Well, what I would say is what the three referendums really showed is that some areas don't want it and some areas do. Yeah. And so the whole beauty of local choice is that it says to the areas that don't want it, great, you can keep using first past the post as long as you want. Why not? But for the areas that voted in high numbers to switch over, um, why don't you let them try it locally? I, I think. Let's look at online voting. No province is using online mm-hmm. voting at the provincial level, but cities have been experimenting with it for 10 years right. all across Canada. That's where experiments are supposed to happen for democracy. You don't start provincially or federally. You start in our city halls, see how it goes. If you don't like the change, you can switch back. But it's a great place for innovations to take hold. All right, Dave. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. It's been very informative, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, George. Have a great day. Take care. If you don't need to be coming to British Columbia, you shouldn't come to British Columbia. We will welcome you uh, when the pandemic has subsided, but you're not welcome today. Smaller communities with limited health care services are asking for your support by staying away for now. Do the right thing and stay within the areas that you live. George Offlegan for Mike Smith. Those were some of the leaders of our province. Uh, you may recognize those voices. Uh, talking about you know restrictions of travel. And the tourism and hospitality sector has poss- possibly been the hardest hit by the pandemic. As more and more people are vaccinated, though, and slowly case rates fall, as fall the industry is starting to think, you know, when's, what's happening with your re- reopening? What's that look like? Uh, and they say the BC government needs to provide them some kind of plan as soon as possible. Joining me now is Sue Kafka, VP of Sales and Marketing for the Capilano Group. Hello, Sue. Good morning, George. So, I, I mean, I think all of us who, anywhere, if you live anywhere in this province and you, you enjoy the hospitality and tourism business and world, and, or if you work in it, you know it's bad out there. But how, how, tell me how bad is it out there, for, for you especially? 
Um, well, it, it really is unbelievable uh, to go into the park on a day like today. The sun is shining. Uh, this time in 2019, we would have expected 3,000, 3,500 visitors from all over the world. And you go out there now, and we'll be lucky to see maybe 75 people today, maybe 100 because it's a beautiful day. But we're dependent on our local area, and uh, our neighbors are coming to visit. They're enjoying it a lot. Um, but uh, people are definitely obeying the uh, provincial health order, I think. Yeah, and you're and you're a well-known, I mean, the Capilano, mainly the, the suspensions bridge and, and all that. People know that, and so it has an immediate, you know, uh, attraction. But other smaller uh, organizations and businesses across BC must be facing an even a worse situation. But, you know, it's, it's all relative. But... What support have you have you has the industry received so far from the provincial government or the federal government? I mean, have you felt like you've got what you to this date what was needed? Well, the biggest benefit to us has been the wage subsidy. Federal so wage, yeah, federal government. The yeah. the, uh, the wage subsidy has mm-hmm. been very helpful, um, but we're doing our best to stay open and keep as many employees as possible, waiting for the day when things will improve. And we will need those people. We have wonderful people here with a lot of skills that over years have learned so much. Some people started here as tour, uh, you know, tour guides in the park and are now in, in, um, in very senior positions. So we don't want to lose any of our staff. The wage subsidy certainly helps our frontline teams and, mm-hmm. and keeps them present. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to stay open for a second year. Yeah. And, and I think we look at what's happening in the UK, and I brought this up a few times, where they seem to have a really solid plan. They've, they're have they very transparent about, okay, on this date, this is going to happen. And on this date, we're going to this, June 21st, we're going to open up for you know events and things like that. Um, they're mm-hmm. further ahead of us on the COVID vaccine, but still, they're being very open and transparent and, and providing a plan. So you as a business, for example, if you had that kind of plan, could plan everything else around that. So what does a pre, a, you know, pre, a, an, a, a reopening plan look like to you, potentially looking at the province and, the, and your local government and the that's, federal government? That's, that's a really good question. Um, if we were just looking at our local, uh, or even Canada, it would be one thing, but you know, we're a, an attraction where people from all over the world come to visit. And these people, these other countries, especially Europe, as they start to open up and want to travel again, they're going to want to come back to Canada. And we need to know what the criteria are for other people coming into the country. When will reopen? Right. What will people be required to do? Mm-hmm. Um, are we open to people only with vaccines? How will they prove that they have vaccines? There's so many questions. Yeah, the, the whole vaccine passport thing. Sorry? Like, yeah, the vaccine passport you know, issue. When are we going to get on that? You know, Because that, that takes a while. That's an important part. I mean, if you've been vaccinated exactly. in the U.S. or the U.K., you're vaccinated. What, what, what's the problem? You know, that, well, why not travel to Canada if you and can? I, you know, they have to figure those things out. But, for example, we have a big trade show coming up in, in a couple of weeks, a virtual trade show where... People will be booking uh, visits to Canada for 2022, and we've got nothing to tell them in terms of what will be required. Um, As recently as, I think it was the day before yesterday, I said that the European Union has stated that they're going to open up for 
people, Americans that have two vaccines, they don't know quite how they're going to do it yet, but they've at least made that announcement that Mm -hmm. the European Union, all 27 countries will be open and ready for American visitors with two vaccines. We haven't even made a statement like that. Um, And if we did, if you're coming with two two vaccines, you're not going to expect a two-week quarantine like we have in Canada. So there's just so many barriers and we need to open things up. And it might not be tomorrow, it might not be next month, but we need to know what it's going to be next year as best we can, or and especially two years out, 2022. And you're, right, 2023. you're a sector, and you talk to your other colleagues, and you work trying to work together. What what exactly, what are you willing to do to get things done? I mean, is there, is there a way, you, what is that working together with the provincial government and the federal government to get action here? Well, we don't know, and certainly... Um, I think it's really the national level that we're looking at. We we need to know what's going to be offered for other countries, their ability to come in, uh, how they're handling vaccines, people who are fully vaccinated. Um, we don't know that. And I think that's a, a big question because we have 117 million Americans with two vaccines right next door. Wouldn't it be nice if some of them could come and visit? Mm-hmm. And at this rate, it looks like, unlikely for a summer opening, do you think? Yes. Well, I guess perhaps they could if they quarantined for two weeks, but, you know, come on. <laughs> or they quarantine on your site, I suppose, in one of the, uh, <laughs> in one of the uh, towers up there in the trees. Well, Sue, I, I, I think that you know, hopefully the, the provincial government's listening. An action plan is what you're asking for. What's happening? Absolutely. Where are we going? And get that done ASAP so you can plan, not just for this year, but for next year, you're saying. Absolutely. We need to know next year as best we can. All right. Thanks very much for joining me today, Sue. You're welcome. Thank you. George Affleck in for Mike Smith. And it's in our last half hour of the show. We'll be talking, getting some of your comments in our buzz line. But first, uh, this one's actually for my kids, I think, because they're huge, huge Titanic fans. And I think Evelyn, I think you're listening, and Pierce. Uh, Quinn's at school right now, but a team of researchers at the University of Quebec have, are trying to figure out if a letter that washed up near the Bay of Fundy of, by a Titan, is from a Titanic passenger, if it's real. What other Titanic artifacts have been found in Canada, and what was Canada's role in the famous tragedy? Deanna Ryan Meister joins me. She's the president of the Titanic Society of Atlantic Canada. Hi, Dee. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. This message in a bottle was found a couple of years ago, but it's, it's, they're trying to figure out if it's real. So what is, do you know, first of all, what does this letter say? Who is it? What's in it? Well, I don't, I haven't got the, the, actually the text of the letter right in front of me. No, but, but it's from uh, a, a kid, right? It's from a 12-year-old girl yeah. named Mathilde Lefebvre. And uh, from what's understood, she, she um, Mathilde was definitely a third-class passenger on Titanic. And she's proposed to have written a note placed it in a bottle, and threw it overboard Titanic on April 13, 1912. Unfortunately, Mathilde died uh, with four of her family members. The letter basically alludes to that she's put a message in, the, in this bottle, mm-hmm. and if anybody finds it, to return it to her family, more or less. And April 13th would have been, so the Titanic... The, the day before the day before. Day. Yeah, and the bottle was found in 2017, yep. my understanding, in the Bay of Fundy and is now being analyzed, as you mentioned, in Ramouski at a University of Quebec uh, by Nicholas Baudry. This is, is this, sorry, go ahead. To date, to date uh, from what I understand, the paper and cork are consistent with carbon dating, but they are, you know, still 
in the process of analyzing it. That's the process, carbon dating. They have to figure it out, and that takes a while. How, why, why so long? Why can't we get the, I, to the bottom I, of it? I have no, I do not know. <laughs> do you, you, does this happen often when suddenly an artifact just kind of shows up? And I mean, you're, you're pretty passionate about this. What, what other things have come across that, like this? this how, how unique is this? It is certainly pretty unique, especially with the time frame. But uh, certainly in past, um, items have been brought into museums, for example, to, and a family member or someone would say, who found it would say, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've located, this is this been passed down in my family. We believe it to have come from the wreckage uh, the, the of the Titanic. And testing has to be done right away, of course, to determine uh, the age and the, the authenticity and things like that. So um, it, it, those things certainly do happen, but uh, each item that's found has to go through certainly, you know, um, a, a process of, um, of analyzation to, to determine if it, if it could indeed be the case. Now, in, if, 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 with, this, with this case, um, it's a question if the handwriting could be penned by a 12-year-old. I anticipate comparison of the letter with other letters written within the region during the Edwardian era would assist in providing the authenticity. Right. It'd be hard to and pretend a, that if you another question is, it's a 50-50 chance, uh, from my perspective, if, you know, that it is, uh, whether it's authentic or it's forgery, because, again, we're, it's still in the analyzing stages. Um, if someone wished to forge the letter and drop it in the ocean to gain notoriety after the tra- Titanic tragedy, they more than likely would choose a more well-known passenger. Maybe not, but more than likely. <laughs> than a bottle, you mean? Then, like, why do a bottle yeah, when you can do something yeah, like why, that? Yeah, why do something like that? They, you know, and uh, someone that soon, let's say if someone did it, chose to do that soon after, yeah. after the tragedy, it would be a gamble. Yeah. The <laughs> bottle would be found within a year or a few years because it could take a year, 25 years or, or get longer. Or crushed by the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Right? So yeah. that's that's what's unique about this for sure, and it seems to me that it totally makes sense. Although, and I think the writing, because I know if I'm thinking about how kids' writing style is now, I'm sure it's not as they don't really teach how to write anymore. It's, you know, handwriting it's not a big thing in schools anymore. So you definitely wouldn't. Well, it would be very different today, certainly than it oh, yeah. was. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And I mean, my understanding is that the researchers investigating this are doing all the right things, including a conservation analysis. They seem aware of the historical context found a number of fake messages in a bottle, and they are doing current analysis, as in the, the ocean currents. Now, the, the, the thing that stands out most is where is the current seems to be going the wrong way. The bottle would have likely, more than likely, reached Ireland or somewhere in Europe, because flotsam typically drifts to Europe via the Gulf Stream. But that's not to say that other factors could have been at play. A, wi- a wind from another direction could take it right. you know, out of the continental drift and Tides in the Bay of Fundy could have been a factor. It's really, it's really hard to say. But again, those authorities will, um, will, you know, hopefully be able to make a, a firm decision. It's interesting too how it was how it was provided to to the media before the analyzing was complete. So, so that means they're optimistic. Do you think? I'm thinking, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to jinx it. You don't want to jinx it. You, Canada, no, no, no. Canada's role is quite significant in, in Titanic history and Titanic uh, uh, artifacts. Is that, is that not... Because you're, you're very involved in this. We, we actually are really into this as a country. 
Yes, absolutely. And being from originally from Newfoundland and now living in Halifax, Halifax has such an, an integral role to play in the Titanic recovery effort. So, of course, the Titanic was built in Belfast and uh, it started the story there. And after the tragedy, the recovery effort for many people, it's where kind of they see where the story ends, but not really because there's so many, there's so many things that come out of, you know, the, that, that recovery history. Right. Uh, descendants looking for information, right. um, just history of you know the the, the human effort um, that we're ingrained. Our history is ingrained here in this, and of course, the White Star Line has other history in the Halifax area as well, because um, in 1873, April 1st, a White Star Line ship sank off of uh, Prospect Bay in, in Nova Scotia. Oh, really? And yeah, and then in 1912, of course, was the recovery effort. Mm-hmm. And December six, uh, December sixth, 1917, was the Halifax explosion, and the SS Emo that collided with the Mont Blanc originally was a White Star cattleship called Runic. Hmm. Yeah. So, so our, our history is ingrained <laughs> in that, and also Canard history because Samuel Canard, who purchased the Canard purchased the White Star Line in 1934, the Canard Canard grew up here. Canard lived here until his adulthood. In so, where? In Halifax? in Halifax. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, so oh, yeah. there's a long history, and you know, and you're very involved, and you're our guest today because you are the best person to talk about that. And I, I, the whole Titanic history. So I appreciate you joining us today, Dee. Okay, and I and I will say, yes, when I'm speaking with Vancouver, I'm really excited to have this opportunity, and we're always looking for, you know, if anybody has questions or anything, to contact us. We're on Facebook, Titanic Society of Atlantic Canada. Okay. And, uh, you know, we don't always look for members from across the country. We have members from across the country, but I don't think there's any from D.C. at the moment. I will get my kids to join because I think they're into it. Well, your children, children are free. They're All children. right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> and I wanted to say that there were connections to Vancouver with the Titanic. Is that right? Real quick, what is that? Okay. Miss, Miss Gladys Cheery, a relation of Noelle Leslie, Countess of Rhodes, was mm-hmm. en route to Vancouver on Titanic in first class. Yep. Also, Mr. Edward Palmer Colley and Thomas Francis McCaffrey were returning to, Grand, to Vancouver. And Second class and third class passengers um, oh, no. There were, That's there, not good. There were all links to BC. And did they all die in the Titanic? Uh, not all. Okay. Uh, and Mrs. Cheery didn't, but others others uh, passed away. We focus here in Nova Scotia on the two Atlantic Canadian passengers from Halifax. One perished and one survived. But if people can find out all about that on our Facebook page or by contacting us at Titanic Society at eastlink.ca. Thanks for the plugs, Dee. Take care. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's wonderful. There's so many people who have such an interest and don't know about us, and we're the only uh, operating Titanic society like this in Canada. So. All right, that's great. I appreciate you being with me today. Thank you, Thank you. George. I really appreciate it too. Thanks for okay. the opportunity. Bye bye.